Hello, everyone. Good morning. What? Thanks, guys. What a fantastic start to the service. Hopefully, things will continue in that light. Um, good morning, everyone. Look, uh, my first duty actually today is to bring you greetings and thanks from our friends up at Corriong. I was there last week and had the opportunity to visit with them, and uh, they insisted that I pass on their thanks to uh, you guys, particularly to pastors David and Matt for their contribution in Corriong over the last few weeks. Um, they also wanted uh, everyone here at Wodonga, sorry, wanted to thank everybody here at Wodonga for your understanding and generosity in allowing Matt and David to go up there and help their pastor Graham. Um, they also told me to let you know that you are always welcome to come and visit them. They love having having people from down here come and visit them. So uh, if you want to go up to a lovely part of the country, take a Sunday up there. Uh, we'll, we'll let you go from here to do that. Um, now, I've been up here before and I know I've probably told you guys that before I came to uh, live and work here in Albury-Wodonga, I used to live up in Sydney for about 10 years and I worked at one of the hospitals up there. And uh, while I was there, uh, something happened in, in the hospital and they needed a new uh, person to become a justice of the peace within the allied health part of the hospital and so I was nominated to go and do that and uh, so I went off and uh, did the training to become registered. You see the interesting thing in New South Wales is you, uh, unlike most other states, you actually have to do a course before you can apply to be a JP and uh, it's so that you understand the legal responsibilities of the role so that you don't get yourself and others in trouble when, uh, when uh, looking at different documents and things. Um, and the man that taught us was a retired judge from the magistrate's court. He was a really interesting guy and he had some fantastic stories, some funny stories too, bits of trivia from his days on the bench. And um, I remember him uh, one night, he was explaining to us the origins of the saying, possession is nine-tenths of the law. Now, I always thought that meant that if you were the holder of something, that nine times out of ten, the law would say, well, you must be the owner. But he went, no, that's not at all what it means. What it actually means is that the law regarding possession and ownership is so complex that if you lined up all the laws ever written on a shelf, nine-tenths of them would be just about who owns what. Um you see, it seems that people just can't help themselves when it comes to laws. We have this terrible habit of taking a law and instead of just considering the overriding principle of it, we look for exemptions and exclusions. And what we end up doing is creating laws upon laws to explain every conceivable situation. And it becomes so complex that no one can really understand or even obey it. Um, another story, I remember when I was a kid, I, uh, our family used to holiday down to a place in Phillip Island. We'd go caravanning every year at, at Christmas. And at the, at the place where we went caravanning, there were trampolines and they had a three-minute time clock so that everybody would get a turn, you know. Um, 
One of the tricks that some of the older kids had come up with, though, was that they would play a game they called add-ons. Um, and this would actually allow them to actually get more time. And the way it worked was that this the first person would perform a trick and then the second person would get on and perform the same trick and add another trick with no bounces or normal jumps in between. Then the third person would get on and do likewise and the game would go on and on. Now, um, the thing was that if you, if you failed to complete the string of moves correctly and that was actually determined by the preceding players, then you're out of the game. Um, it would go on until one person remained. Only one person could complete that, se- that entire sequence. The thing was, each person added their allotted time to the total. So this game could go on for a very long part of the day. Um, and the little kids who'd actually given their three minutes to the game had no hope of performing the ten or more complex moves before their, cha- before their chance came around to even give it a try. They would be out before they even started. And only the very skillful and the big kids ended up spending any time on the trampoline. The idea that they could both make the standard, be judge of the standard, and, uh, and actually uh, uh, exclude kids by making that, in- that standard impossible to live up to. And it's actually this type of behaviour that Jesus comes up against in our story today. If you're reading along with me, we want to look at uh, the book of Mark and we're looking at chapter 2 today and we're starting at verse 23. Now these are two very short stories that Mark, Luke and Matthew all record and most scholars seem to think that they probably took place on two successive Sabbath days. Now, in case you've never heard of the Sabbath, it's the seventh day of the week, uh, our Saturday, and it's the day of rest for the Jewish people. Before these stories, Jesus had actually healed a man, a lame man, on the Sabbath in Jerusalem. But the Pharisees, the fanatical law keepers, they didn't actually see that happen. They just saw a once lame man now carrying his bed. But the news had got around and, uh, and that something had happened down there in Jerusalem and Jesus, he's now moved up into Galilee, north of Jerusalem. He uh, and the Pharisees are there and they're watching to see what Jesus does. And then Mark tells us here in verse 23, he says, One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields and as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. And the Pharisees said to him, Look! Why are they doing what's unlawful on the Sabbath? And he answered, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar, the high priest, he entered the house of God and he ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for the priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, so the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. 
Another time, Jesus went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for, for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. And Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, Stand up here, up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, Which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save a life or to kill? But they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and they began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. So as you've probably seen over the last few weeks, up to this point, Mark's been making the case that Jesus came to bring a whole new type of kingdom. Nothing like what the religious people were expecting and probably to some extent not even what we're expecting. Despite the fact that Jesus has already been demonstrating his power and linking that to his authority by both healing diseases and forgiving sins, the Pharisees, they just still don't get it. In fact, they're already feeling threatened. But does Jesus back down? No, instead he actually confronts them head on. And in these two stories, Jesus tears down their whole scriptural view and with it, their power. Now, to understand what's going on in in these stories, um, you need to understand what the Sabbath had actually become. This was the highlight of the Pharisaic week, the day when... uh, a day when they could demonstrate their own, the Pharisees could demonstrate their own piety as being both the lawmakers and the interpreters and the judges of the law. And so just like the kids on the trampoline, the Pharisees would use their position and their knowledge to suppress, intimidate and restrict people. While they thrived on the observance of the, of the Sabbath, the rest of the God-fearing Jews were pressured and cajoled into keeping their Sabbath rules. And these rules were extensive. There was no rule book, at least not until about 70 AD, when the earliest parts of the Talmud appear. It was, at this time, still an oral tradition. So the Pharisees could conveniently forget some of the rules when it suited them and interpret uh, interpret them harshly when they wanted. Now, these Sabbath rules included things like you can't walk more than 1,999 paces on the Sabbath. That would not be resting. This count seems to be something the Pharisees conveniently don't mention when they're walking through the grain fields on the day that they're spying on Jesus. You also can't carry anything heavier than a dried fig for for more than four cubits in a public place. That's shifting a load and that's not allowed. 
You also can't have your animals shift the load for you. They have to rest as well. You can't light a fire. You can't put out a fire. Even if your house is burning down, unless there is somebody inside who's certain to die from the fire, then you can do it. You can't play a musical instrument unless it's in the temple as part of worship. You can't make or repair a musical instrument. So, guys, you can't tune your guitars on the Sabbath. You can't boil an egg. You can't put it in the hot sand to cook. For that matter, you can't eat an egg laid on the Sabbath or the day or laid the day after the Sabbath because that means the chicken prepared it on the Sabbath. (laughs) You can't separate foods, turning them from inedible to edible. That includes a ban on filtering water or picking the bones out of a piece of fish. These are classified as winnowing, just like the disciples were when they separated the husks from the grain. You can't have a bath on the Sabbath in case you accidentally splash water and inadvertently clean the floor. You can't find a pin on on the floor and pick it up. That's cleaning too. Women, you are not allowed to look in the mirror in case you find a grey hair and attempted to pull it out. That's not allowed. There's also some absolutely unbelievable rules about what married couples can and can't do on the Sabbath. But the one that I reckon absolutely takes the cake is you can't tithe on the Sabbath. You see, you might be tempted to lie about how much you give. This meant that the common people would have to make a special trip to the synagogue on a different day so that they could bring their gifts to God. The Pharisees made up all these rules and the Talmud and in the Talmud uh, there is 24 volumes containing 39 classifications of rules. Can you imagine living under that level of scrutiny? It would be oppressive and unkind. But you know what? It's also unscriptural. You see, back in Genesis chapter 2, God first blesses the seventh day and he declares it holy because he rested from the work of creation. Then years, in fact generations later, after slavery in Egypt, God actually ordains the Sabbath as a day of rest from your work as the fourth of the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. And then God reinforces the importance of resting from your work, again in Exodus 31 and Deuteronomy 5. The scriptures don't say anything about these Talmud rules. They are extrapolations of rest from your work. This Sabbath was ordained by God in order to set his people apart and give them the space and the freedom to develop and maintain their relationship with God, to give them rest and recovery. And here it was now being twisted into something to oppress God's people. It's no longer a gift of mercy to the Jews. It's become a day of deprivation, not just for the Pharisees. No, they made sure everybody had to suffer. 
even their religious rivals, the scribes, who absolutely hated the Pharisees, had been worn down by their constant judgment so that the scribes would even comply with Sabbath laws, at least they would in public. The Pharisaic system is all based on works, merit, self-righteousness, attainment and achievement through ceremonial law and external law-keeping. It created a culture of fear, isolation and guilt. It wore people down and because of it, the Sabbath had become something to endure, not to celebrate. And that's what Jesus is coming against in these two incidents. And now I have absolutely no doubt that he actually orchestrated this confrontation. You see, only shortly before this event, Matthew records Jesus saying, Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened. I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I'm gentle and humble in heart and you'll find rest for your souls. You see, even here, Jesus is not so worried about physical rest or physical inactivity. This is rest for your souls. He's talking about relief from the oppression of the Pharisaic system of rules and restrictions, a system that offered no hope or relief from a guilty conscience, just more rules upon rules to be obeyed. But here, in this first story, the Pharisees, they actually have their nose put out a joint because Jesus doesn't react to, uh, Jesus doesn't react to the disciples picking a few heads of grain and rubbing the husks off for a snack, just as Deuteronomy 23 actually says they can. The Pharisees call this harvesting and winnowing, which is work. And what the Pharisees really want to know is why are these disciples defying their authority? And Jesus' response to the Pharisees is really interesting. He starts off with a question. Have you not read what David did? Don't you know your scriptures? Well, that would have really got the Pharisees back up, I reckon, because of course they'd read it. They prided themselves on their knowledge of the scriptures. And anything about their greatest king, David, they probably could quote it. The story Jesus is referring to is found in 1 Samuel uh, chapter 21, if you want to look it up. David and a small band of his men are, are running for their lives from Saul and come to where the tabernacle is at a little town called Nob. And they are tired and they're hungry. And There is a priest working at the time. His name is Ahimelech, but it's during the era of the great priest. There were possibly two priests with the same name, Abiathar. And in Leviticus 24, it teaches that each week on the Sabbath, 12 loaves of bread would be placed before the holiest place in the tabernacle as a symbol of the 12 tribes of Israel continuing their relationship with God. And this bread was called the bread of the presence. And when the old bread was removed at the end of seven days, it could be consumed by the priests, but only the priests. However, because he has no food, Ahimelech 
after checking that David and his men had not been sinning and would thereby corrupt uh, or insult the offering to God, he allows them also to eat this bread of the presence. So this is both breaking the law of eating the consecrated bread and it's likely that it also took place on the Sabbath. And these Pharisees, they know this story. Jesus points out that their greatest king, David, broke the law and encouraged others to break it too. But why? Why does Jesus point this out? Well, it could be a few reasons. First, it might be that if it's okay for David to break a God-ordained ritual, then it's okay for Jesus and his disciples to break an unbiblical rule. But more likely, Jesus is pointing out that a rule or a tradition, it's okay, but it should never be at the cost of human need or doing good. In Matthew chapter 15, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees about, uh, and, about real obedience and doing good. And he says, why do you break the commands of God for the sake of your traditions? The third possible reason I came up with is that Jesus bring, uh, could be bringing up this story um, because he's trying to make a comparison. Jesus, uh, sorry, David, the great king. Jesus, the greater king. And that point would not have been lost on the Pharisees because Jesus then says in verse 27, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. They would have heard him use this title, Lord of the Sabbath, and understood what Jesus was saying. You see, if the Sabbath is a command of God, and Jesus is saying that the Sabbath is under his authority, Jesus is actually saying that he has the authority to interpret God's will, will, God's word and God's law, not men. In effect, Jesus is saying he is God. And to the Pharisees' ears, this is blasphemy. The next story that Mark records, uh, which, as I mentioned, possibly happened on the very next Sabbath, our Saturday, Jesus doubles down on this confrontation with the religious leaders. The people opposing Jesus are watching him to see if he slips up. They want to find something that they can pin on him, but instead Jesus gives them the opportunity to correct their thinking about him and their view about the Sabbath and what the Sabbath is about. Jesus calls uh, for a crippled man with a deformed hand to come up the front so he can make a point. Now, for a second, just think of what it must have been like for, at the, at, for this guy at that time and in that culture if you didn't have a hand that worked. The guy was probably unemployed. He would have struggled with physical labour. And like many cultures today, he might have actually been seen as unclean because he would have had to both eat and toilet with one hand. He's likely to have been ostracised and really only exist on the fringes of the community. If there was ever a person that could use a little compassion and grace, this man could. 
But that's not what the religious leaders are concerned about. They're only concerned about Sabbath rules. So Jesus' question is very pointed. Does the law permit good deeds on the Sabbath or is it a day for doing evil, a day to save a life or destroy it? Jesus says nothing about rest, only about doing good. The Pharisees know what the scripture says about true worship and what the Sabbath is actually meant to be about. They know that in Isaiah chapter 58, for instance, God says that he doesn't want their ceremonies and rules. God wants his people to be compassionate, just. He wants them to be generous, freeing, helpful, restoring. He wants builders of homes, builders of families. Look at what it says in Isaiah 58, 13. It says, Keep the Sabbath day holy. Don't pursue your own interests on that day, but enjoy the Sabbath and speak of it with delight as the Lord's holy day. Honour the Sabbath in everything you do on that day. So they're allowed to do things on the Sabbath and it's meant to be a day of joy. And even back in Isaiah chapter 1, God says to his wayward people, what makes you think I want your sacrifices? Uh, I'm sick of your burnt offerings. I don't like the way you strut around in your ceremonies and special festivals. First, give up your evil ways. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Help the oppressed. Defend the cause of orphans. Fight for the right of, rights of widows. So when Jesus asks that question, does the law permit good deeds on the Sabbath or is it a day for doing evil? The irony in this situation, it's staggering. Jesus shows compassion on the man by healing, uh, by telling him to stretch out his crippled hand. He doesn't even touch or force it open. Just a word. And a word is not something that can be considered work. So Jesus effectively saves a life while the Pharisees go away and start plotting how to destroy and kill Jesus. And it is all because he challenged their authority and undermined their capacity to control and dominate the Jewish people. Jesus is demonstrating that he's Lord of the Sabbath, that he has the authority to say what the Sabbath is meant to be. And he says it is a day, more than any other day, that should be marked by grace. In fact, his whole kingdom, he's demonstrating, is to be a kingdom of grace. Remember Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened. I'll give you rest. You will find rest for your souls. Doesn't that sound good? So the question remains, is the Sabbath still important? Is it still important today? Well, it appears that the Sabbath on a Saturday as observed by the Jews was a special observance ordained by God for his special people. Interestingly, after Jesus' resurrection, there is almost no mention in Scripture of having a seventh-day rest. 
except when Paul is trying to reach his fellow Jews for the gospel. And at that time, he says, to the Jews I became a Jew. In other words, he followed their customs while amongst them. But all through the New Testament and into the earliest earliest records that we have of the Christian church, they would actually meet on the first day of the week to celebrate and worship the risen Jesus. And we still have that happening today, the first day of the week, Sunday, that's why we're here. The followers of Christ gather to give praise and thanks to God, to take the opportunity to encourage others and to put aside the distractions of the world and make space to spend time with God. The problem is that even though uh, we don't have Pharisees enforcing Sabbath law here today, I think we can still fall into the same trap of becoming rules-based, religious about our Sundays, and think that somehow our behaviour what we do or what we don't do on Sunday can somehow bring us closer to God. And that's exactly what Jesus is correcting in these stories. He's he's saying that we don't have to try and hold to a set of rules, that they can't save us anyway. We can come to him, follow him, and in his grace, his kingdom of grace, We can rest in his forgiveness as he restores us into relationship with the Father God. If we consider Sunday our Sabbath or our resting day, then we put aside our work to create space to worship God. Not out of a sense of compulsion though, but because we are drawn to his love and his grace uh, of our Saviour Jesus Christ. The writer of Hebrews puts it really well in chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. He says, God's promise of entering his rest, it still stands. So we ought to tremble with fear that some of you might fail to experience it. For this good news, that God has prepared this rest, has been announced to us just as it was to them. But it did did them no good because they didn't share the faith of those who listened to God. Listening to God, that appears to be the key. The day of rest is so that we have the space to listen to God, to commune with God and to worship him. I hope that each of us is able to look to Jesus to have faith in him and to become part of his kingdom of grace. We'll find rest, we'll find Sabbath that we so desperately need. Why don't you join me as I ask him for exactly that? Father, we're so thankful that you sent your son to save us and to free us from the impossible task of constantly being perfect. And we thank you that in these two short stories today that we've seen how Jesus helps us to understand what resting in him really is and and why it's far better than trying to live to man-made rules. Father, we ask that we won't fall into the trap of thinking that we can save ourselves or 
that we can even become like the Pharisees and invent rules that keep people from knowing the true freedom and rest that you so graciously offer us. Father, we want to make Sabbath a priority because it's so desperately, we so desperately need to walk closer with you. We want to live and enjoy your kingdom of grace, rest and relationship with the Father. Help us to keep our eyes fixed on you and for those maybe that are yet to experience that rest, I ask that you would give them the courage to seek your son Jesus and to find him and all that he offers. Amen.